0: Welcome back to Trout Talk. I'm Peter Scorzetti. This week, I have John Jurasek on the line again to talk fly casting, which is a topic he knows quite a bit about. He's been teaching fly casting in West Yellowstone for almost 40 years now. He's a renowned casting instructor throughout the American fly fishing community. John, thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Peter, it's a pleasure to be back here with you. I'm looking forward to talking a little casting, and hopefully we can share some insights that'll be useful to the listeners. Likewise.
0: Okay, so sort of the elephant in the room here (laughs) is that a lot of people, especially young people, they're just eager to get out and fly fish, and they don't want to get into the dry technical topic of fly casting. But of course, it's essential. We have to do it. And a lot of us want to become better fly casters. So I figured we should we should talk about it.
1: Well, I know that a lot of people think of it as technical and boring. But really, you have to consider this. It is the absolute absolute most fundamental, most important aspect of this sport. Without casting, we're not going to accomplish a whole lot. And so despite how you might think of it, fly casting can be a lot of fun. In fact, I'd argue that many of your listeners came to this sport because they saw someone cast in a fly line and that line moving back and forth really graceful, beautifully. They said, hey man, that looks cool. I got to try that. And so it is a lot of fun. And I think we Sort of lose sight of that but think about this as humans we are drawn to smooth continuous motion on a very primal subconscious level flowing motion feels good and i think we see that in fly casting it is a blast especially when you do it well we don't want to lose sight of that it's really cool
0: no doubt you Oh, it never, never ceased to make things interesting and uh, make us think in a way that we don't normally. Okay. So just to kind of jump into things, I think most people have some room for improvement with fly casting. I definitely do. When I started fly fishing, one of my biggest issues was I didn't really know how to go about becoming a better caster. I'm kind of a visual learner and I, I had trouble figuring out, okay, what am I going for? I'd seen several casting demonstrations, but it seemed like every instructor that I saw kind of had a different approach. So I was left thinking, okay, are there a bunch of ways to to cast with a sound stroke? Can you, I guess, comment on that? Like what should our target be when we want to become better casters?
1: Well, like most every sport, there are good fundamentals and there are bad fundamentals. So what your stroke looks like, if you have good sound fundamentals, you're going to look like all the excellent casters out there. There are not a million different strokes that are all fundamentally sound. There is one fundamentally sound stroke, which is why the greatest casters in the world all look similar to the casual observer because they are using the same mechanics. So there's a million ways to chuck a fly around. You just go on the stream and watch all your fellow fishermen. You'll see all kinds of different ways of doing it. But there is only one sound stroke that's it there are good fundamentals and then there are flawed fundamentals And uh, we want to be in possession of good fundamentals and if you are you're going to look like all the great casters
0: okay what's the difference when you have five different casting instructors kind of talking in different ways or at least tell, telling you kind of different things so you know they're like certified casting instructors so they must have sound strokes I guess, where's like the discrepancy between all these instructors? Well,
1: well, that's an interesting question. And I'm probably going to upset a few people here with my answer. There are a lot of people, certified casting instructors, that do not have sound fundamentals. And they don't know how to teach sound fundamentals. And I hate to say that because it reflects poorly on my profession, but that's the honest truth. So there is a lot of lousy fly casting instruction out there. It's unfortunate because it hurts people a lot when they go on YouTube and watch all these videos and try to emulate some of what they see and hear there's just a lot of bad instruction out there so that is one thing that explains why you can listen to five teachers and you come away with five different ways of doing it and uh, again I hate to say that but uh, my profession is a little bit weak in the art of teaching fly casting there's a lot of knowledge out there among the instructors. But in terms of relaying that knowledge in a practical, hands-on way, easy to understand and integrate, um, there's a lot lacking here.
0: Okay, so you could you could hypothetically run into an instructor that that has sound
1: fundamentals, but they just
0: are explaining things in a completely different way than kind of the next casting instructor.
1: Yeah, you, you sure can, and that's one of the things, right? Knowledge does not equal behavior, and knowledge is not the same thing as being able to teach. Those are different things. And so the ability to teach is really quite rare, especially in a way that's easy to understand and easy to implement for a student. So you not only have to be a good fly caster and understand the technical aspects of it, you have to be able to teach. And that's something that uh, is a little bit amiss in my profession as well.
0: Okay, if we wanna become better fly casters, Obviously, it would be a great place to start if we had access to a great fly casting instructor, but not everyone has someone like that around or can afford that. What can you tell us about just the fundamentals of the fly casting stroke? What's happening with your arm when you're making a sound stroke? What does that look like? Let me give you an
1: analogy that might help most people that are listening and cannot see this, though I know you're going to link to some uh, videos that people can refer to later on, but The path that the hand and the arm travel in a sound casting stroke is very much like your arm movement if you were running kind of hard, almost sprinting. The main pivot point is the shoulder. It is not the elbow. It is not the wrist. All good fly casting begins in the shoulder. And so that motion, that sort of rocking motion, pumping the arms, your elbow moves up and down your elbow does not stay stationary. Your elbow does not move parallel to the ground. It moves up and down. So I think if you kind of visualize that pumping of the arms as you're running, that in essence is what a fundamentally sound casting stroke looks and feels like.
0: Okay. So to clarify, you're not talking about the the elbow hinging in any way. You're saying if you're hinging in the shoulder, the elbow is kind of the way that you measure. You can
1: see that your arm's going up and down and hinging in the shoulder. Exactly. That up and down movement of the elbow tells you that you are, in fact, pivoting in the shoulder. And so just one minor point here that might be of interest. uh, If you look at the angle between your forearm and upper arm, it's about 90 degrees, and it more or less stays that way through the stroke, except when you're casting long, long distances kind of keep that in mind. Uh, And I'd have your listeners just sort of emulate or or simulate running, kind of pumping your arms and just look at how those arms are moving. And that'll give you a a general idea.
0: Okay. So it sounds like the shoulder joint is kind of the foundation of the stroke. Can we use sort of an example to, um, let's say we're casting 30 feet, the single dry fly to a rising trout, what's going to be going on with those three joints and how are they working together?
1: Well, we, we are using our arm as a single unit. We are doing it just as if you were throwing a baseball or a football. You would never throw either one of those with just your wrist or just your arm without your wrist. All the elements of the arm have to work together. The upper arm, the forearm, and the wrist. So how we do it is we start with the upper arm. That's what begins every fly cast, that pivoting in the shoulder. We translate that down to the form, which does not move a lot in most cases, especially when you're casting short like 30 feet. And then we finish with the wrist. There is always a little bit of wrist used in every single stroke. At short distances, that's a little bit of wrist. At long distances, that's a lot of wrist. But we are using the entire arm as a single unit because that's what's efficient. That's how this arm is designed and we want to make full use of that.
0: Okay, so you're saying a great caster, when they're casting 100 feet, they're basically going to expend all resources of each part of the arm, versus when you're casting 15 feet, you're basically just mostly using your shoulder and a
1: little bit of the wrist. I'd characterize it this way we have one single casting stroke, and the only thing that changes with the distance we're casting is the length of that stroke. If we're casting 15 feet, our stroke is very short. If I'm casting 100 feet, my stroke is very long. But the shape of that stroke never changes. Only the length of it. Only the distance my hand and arm move. It's kind of like throwing a baseball. If you were going to throw a baseball, just say 50 feet, you don't need a big long windup to do that. Uh, If you're going to throw a baseball 200 feet, guess what? You're going to take a much longer arm extension you're going to uh, your stroke is going to be much longer and same thing with fly casting short line short stroke longer line longer stroke but that stroke looks the same
0: okay it's somewhat following the same path
1: yes exactly
0: okay so if we want to see this in action who are some of the great the great casters that maybe have some video online that we can kind of see what they're doing
1: there's uh, a few people I'd refer you to. For one, uh, I would look at Chris Korich. He's a world champion, lives out in California. He has a beautiful stroke. One of his protégés, Maxine McCormick, also the reigning women's world champion, has a beautiful casting stroke as well, very fundamentally sound. And of course, third it would be one of the great casters of all time, if not the greatest of all time, would be Steve Rajeff all three of those have a very similar stroke there are minor differences but overall they all utilize excellent fundamentals and largely look the same
0: okay so and if we're if we're watching video of them you see so many people cast in your life it's kind of hard to really pick up on the differences sometimes would you really just hone in on seeing what their arm is doing and that way you don't get distracted by the line unfurling
1: Yes, if you want to become a better caster, you have to pay attention to the stroke, the movement the arm is making. And that's what I would concentrate on. In a lot of these videos, you're not going to see their line anyways. Just look at the movement of their hand and arm and try to emulate that. Uh, Especially, I know there's a really super slow motion video of a Chris Korch stroke on YouTube that maybe you can link to, but that will show you exactly what we're talking about here. And it'll be easy to see and easy to follow based on what we've talked about. So
0: it'll be easy to see that he's hinging, he's hinging in the shoulder.
1: Absolutely. You will see that pivot point is in the shoulder. You will see his elbow move up and down. You will see him use a little bit of wrist at the end of the stroke, which is exactly where we want to use it.
0: So I know that a lot of people think of competitive casting as just completely separate from fishing and they might be thinking, why am I even getting into this? Why are we, why are we talking about how those people would perform that's not fishing? But I, get, I, I assume that no matter what you're doing in fishing, having a sound stroke is going to
1: translate. Yeah. The best casters in the world have good mechanics. And even if they don't fish a lot or fish at all, they know how to fly cast. And it is very easy to take that to the water. Good mechanics will always translate to fishing. So it's not a question of tournament casting versus fishing. If you're a good caster, you're a good caster. And those guys, because uh, accuracy and distance depend so much on good fundamentals, guess what? They spend a lot of time honing that. As fishermen, we should do that too. But of course, we don't often spend as much time as we should practicing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard to stick, uh, to stick it out sometimes when
1: you just, all you want to do is fish. Well, hey, check this out. I know that it takes effort and discipline to go out and practice, but I think something we overlook here, and I want to make a real point of this, is that, remember, fly casting is fun, and learning is fun, improvement is fun. We tend to downplay fly casting as merely a means to an end. A way to deliver our fly, but there is a lot of a joy to be had from the act of casting. It isn't just about catching another fish, because if it is, why are we even fly fishing? Yeah, go out and fish worms, and you'll catch all kinds of fish. Part of the joy of fly fishing is in the casting itself, and there is a real reward to be had there. So I just want to point that out.
0: Well, thank you. <laughs> Intriguing thoughts, um, yeah. as always. I think we, you know, we get so caught up in catching fish that sometimes we forget about those elements.
1: Yeah. Well, think about this and I'll just sum it up this way for your listeners. The acquisition of skill is a process. It is not an event and the process itself can be the reward. Yeah. Learning can be the reward itself. It is just a lot of fun to get out there. And when you have control over your line and your leader and your fly, uh, Fly-fishing is a blast. Are you kidding me? It's an f- awesome sport and you're gonna meet with a lot of success And if you don't have control over your line and your leader in your fly, well, guess what? Fly-fishing can be really frustrating so I just offer those thoughts and uh, Hopefully uh, it'll encourage people to get out and do a little practicing and, and seek good instruction
0: So you think it'll pay off for people?
1: I guarantee it will pay off assuming They are learning proper mechanics. That's the real key. I deal with people all summer long in my private casting instruction practice that have had bad instruction and we are constantly trying to overcome the flaws that became ingrained in them. And that's hard. Whereas if you learn properly right off the bat, my casting is not that difficult. This is not golf we're talking about. It is far, far less complicated. And anybody can do it that is shown properly. How to do it.
0: John, those are really cool thoughts. We don't seem to hear them that much in, in fly fishing. I want to pivot now to um, just ask you about some of those more frustrating things that we often run into. What are the most common casting problems you see when you're teaching?
1: A couple of things come to mind right off the bat. One is wind knots. Wind knots are caused by tailing loops, and, uh, it's a huge problem for most casters and along with wind knots, uh, the same flaw causes their fly to either tick their rod or catch on their rod.
0: And how do you go about fixing whatever flaw takes you into getting wind knots?
1: Well, there's two really, two real reasons why we get wind knots. One is our acceleration is too abrupt. It isn't smooth. All acceleration with a fly rod needs to be done smoothly. You have to build that speed up gradually. And if you uh, accelerate too abruptly, if you shock that rod, that can cause a tailing loop. But that is not the most common way of getting a tailing loop. The most common reason we get tailing loops is because our elbow is not moving up and down. If you watch the majority of fly casters, their elbow is stationary or worse yet, it moves parallel to the ground. Either one of those, if that's in your stroke, you are guaranteed to get wind knots. The elbow moving up and down is what prevents wind knots. And if you w- look at these videos that uh, I think you're going to link to and look at these casters elbow movement, you will see that very, very clearly.
0: Okay. So you're. it sounds like you're most likely relying on your wrist or your elbow to kind of do a lot of the work of the cast and that way you're not raising and lowering your elbow because you're not using your shoulder. You're not pivoting in the shoulder.
1: Right. Most people are pivoting in the elbow or they're moving their elbow parallel to the ground if they're moving it at all. But remember, all good fly casting starts in the shoulder. That is the primary pivot point, not the elbow.
0: Okay. I know just one of the most difficult things for a lot of fly casters is doing what doing what they're actually trying to do because you know you're focusing when you're casting yourself you're focusing on what your line's doing. You're focusing on all the all the um, improvements you're trying to make, and it's hard to actually be like, okay, well, I wanted my elbow to go up and down, but I don't really know if it is. How do people? How do people measure what they're doing by themselves? Do they have to video themselves?
1: Yeah, that's certainly the easiest way to do it, because there's always or often a disconnect between what you think you're doing and what you actually are doing. So yes, video especially in this day and age with cell phones. I mean, it's so easy to go out and have somebody video you for 10 seconds or you can figure out a way to do it yourself and just look at what your arm's doing. Look at the, uh, the path the hand and the arm are traveling on and see if they're sound or not. Okay. So, yeah, it's very easy and that's what, what people should do if they don't have someone there that uh, can watch them and, and help them.
0: Okay. I wanted to take you back to, you are talking about the the importance of smooth acceleration if somebody's struggling um, with not being smooth, how can they kind of work out that issue?
1: There's a couple of different ways you can kind of think about it. Uh, a few of the ones I often tell people are that we are gonna start the stroke slow and we are gonna finish fast. That our acceleration is gradual, but it is there. We have to accelerate that rod, but it must be done smoothly. And a lot of that, it just, it takes experience. It takes repetition. People have to get that rod in their hand and work on that. There's no, there's no sort of panacea that I can say verbally that will cure that. Uh, it's one, one of those things we simply have to work on. We have to experience it for ourselves. And the more repetitions we make, the more strokes we take, guess what? The smoother, we're going to be able to accelerate that rod.
0: Okay. That sounds like sound advice to me. What's another issue that you, you often see? With people's cast strokes.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the most common problems aside from wind knots are people have these really wide, lazy loops. And when they're when they make their cast, their line tip piles up, their leader collapses, and everything ends up in a heap.
0: Okay, but um just sorry to stop you, but by wide lazy loops, you're talking about as the fly line comes forward, I guess, or backward, but in a forward cast. The fly line's coming forward in a big, wide, lazy loop that could be
1: blown over by the wind or something, right? Yes, absolutely. And so it just lacks, uh, it lacks vigor. And so mm-hmm. what happens is it partially unrolls, but then it gets to the line tip and the leader and everything just piles up. It collapses. That's a huge problem for most people. And uh, unfortunately, most people don't learn how to solve that problem.
0: Okay. And going back to your previous advice, short line, short stroke... I assume that's because people have a long stroke with a short line, um, maybe trying to muscle it through, but the stroke's so big that they can't turn
1: the line over? Yes. When your line and leader pile up, your stroke is too long for that amount of line. Okay? And when I say your stroke is too long for that amount of line, the odds are good that you have taken the rod too far back behind you on the back cast. Okay, so the length of the stroke, the distance I move my hand and arm, varies with the length of the line. And as you suggested, if I have a short line, I have a very short stroke. If I have a longer line, I use a longer stroke. Your line will always tell you what's right if you understand what it's telling you. When your line unrolls in a narrow loop and everything straightens out perfectly, line, leader, and fly you know your stroke was just the right length. When your line turns over in a wide loop, leader and line tip pile up and collapse, your stroke was too long. You took the rod too far back behind you on the back cast And so the cure for that, the way that we can straighten out our fly line is with a stroke that is the right length. And in a, it's, a, it's an irony, Peter, but... That is what we should all be taught the very first time we pick up a fly rod. How do I cast a straight line? Because everything we do with a fly rod is based on being able to cast a perfectly straight line. And if we never learn that, guess what? Our development as fly casters is stymied. <laughs> that and
0: that and probably many things in life. It's, it would oh, be sure. good to learn <laughs> sound fundamentals <laughs> from the beginning.
1: Yeah, um, of course.
0: I wanna kind of jump into a specific thing. So I've seen people that they really have trouble using too much wrist. And I assume if you're using too much wrist, that's going to make it really hard to have a short stroke. And then people kind of go a little too far probably by trying to really immobilize their wrist and not using any at all. If you have a student that just uses way too much wrist, how do you, or someone that uses none at all, how do you help them find a happy medium?
1: I will show them using just the butt section of rod exactly the path the hand and arm travel and i will point out when the use uh, when the wrist is used and how much it is used but basically the easiest way to think about that is to think about the position of your rod on the back cast and on the forward cast so if you have this arc that you want uh, your forward cast and back cast to sort of create if you just think about that, you're going to end up using about the right amount of wrist most of the time. So I'd rather think about just the positions of the rod instead of saying, well, hey, use more wrist or use less wrist. It's easier for most people to grasp and put into practice just thinking about, hey, where should my rod end up on the back cast? Where should it end up on the forward cast? So okay. most of the time, people will end up using the wrist in the right amount at the right time it's really not a big deal if they are showing good fundamentals okay so that's kind of how i would deal with that i I just i have people think about where is the position of that rod on the back cast and forward cast
0: next i just want to ask you i've had several friends that are very smooth casters on trout water they seem to have a you know total command of their stroke and then the off season comes and they go fishing in the salt water uh, for the first time maybe like for bonefish or permit and they'll come back and they'll be like, geez, I really struggled. Like I had a really tough time getting my fly to fish. Do you know kind of what the phenomenon is, what, what they ran into?
1: Yeah, um, there's two things you can't hide from. You cannot hide from wind and distance. If your stroke has any flaws, they are going to be exposed in the wind and when you try to cast long. So while people may feel like they're competent casters at 40 feet, they still have flaws in their stroke. And while that isn't fatal in a short distance cast, especially like we do trout fishing, guess what? Out in the wind on the flats and when you need to cast 70 feet or more, those flaws become exposed. And you find out right away if you can cast or not by going to the salt. So it basically boils down to good fundamentals again. If your fundamentals are rock solid, you can deal with the wind and you can deal with distance. If you can't deal with those two elements, then there is some flaw contained in your stroke that, again, it's not going to prevent you from catching trout at 30 feet or 20 feet. But, uh, you know, it's it's at the real critical times of distance and wind that, hey, we find out whether we can fly cast or not. And so the bottom line is your friends, as uh, much fun and as as much success as they may have trout fishing, um, the odds are good that their strokes contain some flaws.
0: Okay, so for those friends of mine or myself, I I hope to do some saltwater fishing in the future. What can we do to to make sure that we're casting, that we can reach those distances and, and fight through the wind, I guess to train for an upcoming trip?
1: The first thing you have to do is you have to find a good instructor that can teach you good fundamentals. Or you have to figure them out by looking at some of the videos that I think you're gonna link to here. Uh, And that's really it. Once you have good fundamentals, your distance and the ability to cast in the wind are gonna be simply a a byproduct of having practiced enough, of trained your body enough. But if you have the right fundamentally sound casting stroke, uh, it's just gonna take a little bit of practice in order to be able to cut a lot of wind and also to cast at long distance. Like anything, it takes practice. Fly casting is no different than any other sport in that regard. If you want to get good at it, you have to practice it. You have to practice good mechanics. That is so key.
0: And you can can practice on any lawn. Um, You don't have to be on the water, right?
1: You do not have to be on water, no. In fact, most of the time, water is a distraction. Because usually there's something going on around you. You get out in your backyard or local football field there's no distractions you just think about your stroke set out some targets in front of you and work on hitting those work on gaining control of your line your leader and your fly
0: okay i want to switch over to something a little different i know that you're a big supporter of learning to cast with both hands that's something that we very rarely see in fly fishing is it hard to learn is it worth your time, if you don't have a ton of time, is it something that kind of anyone can, can do?
1: Yes, given good teaching, anyone can learn to cast with their off hand. In fact, I would argue that they're probably better off learning good mechanics with their off hand than trying to break possibly decades old habits with their dominant hand. See, that's what I come up, with, uh, come up against every summer. I'm dealing with people that have ingrained flaws for decades and correcting those takes a lot of discipline and a lot of effort. It is a lot of muscle memory to try to overcome, whereas the offhand has no bad flaws. So if you can learn with your offhand, good mechanics right off the bat, guess what? You can become competent in a fishing sense in short order. I know that sounds amazing to people and you might think, oh, John, you're crazy. No, if you learn good fundamentals, your offhand will develop pretty quickly to the point where you could actually fish. with it. So yeah, I'm always encouraged people to to learn with both hands because that way you will never be in a situation that you can't deal with. You go saltwater fishing on a flats boat and that wind is ripping in hard from the right side and the guide can't reposition that boat. Guess what? That's a tough shot for you. You cast left-handed, wow, you switch hands, no problem. You make that cast and catch that fish. It takes less effort and less time uh, than people would think.
0: Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a terrific advantage to have, just being able to switch over in a big wind on the flats, especially.
1: There is nothing like it. I can tell you from experience, the ability to cast with both hands, it just it liberates you completely because you will never be in a situation anywhere in the fly fishing world that you can't deal with. So I hope someone out there, even if it's just one person listening, says, hey, you know what? I'm going to go out and try with my offhand. See what happens. Give it a whirl. It's worth it.
0: Well, hopefully uh, that person is out there and we'll hear from them in a year and they can let us know how it went.
1: I would love to hear it. It'll make a difference in your life. Believe me. (laughs) At least in your fly fishing life. Let's put it that way.
0: (laughs) Um. Part of what brought me to that question is I have a young daughter that I hope takes up fly fishing someday. And I've always thought, you know, I'm going to teach her to cast with both hands. And I just wanted to ask you, I know you've taught a lot of kids. When's the right age to
1: really start teaching a kid to fly cast? You know, Peter, there's no real uniform answer to that question because it just depends on the child. Some of the things that you want to look for are you want to have a certain level of coordination and strength um, a certain attention span and, you know, and sort of an overall psychological development of the child that can sort of listen to what you're saying and implement it. So, since all children develop at different ages, different ways, uh, there's no universal answer there. I've taught kids as young as five and six, but they weren't really ready to seriously fly cast. They're more waving the rod around out there, having fun. But I guess for someone that's really That really wants to get into fly casting. Certainly, by age ten and eleven, almost every child is really ready to roll at that time. If they have an interest in it, or you can expose them to it and they develop that interest, they're pretty much ready to roll at that age. Possibly younger kids, for sure. I've seen. I taught a nine-year-old girl who was a nationally ranked tennis player uh, one summer. And uh, at nine, she was rare and ready to go. She had incredible focus and determination. Listened to what I said, incorporated it. So. Again, no universal answer.
0: Okay, last question. If we want to chuck a heavy nymph rig, how do we adjust our stroke to kind of compensate for the weight?
1: I'm glad you asked that question because nymph fishing, especially with a couple nymphs and split shot and indicators, is so popular these days. People ask me that all the time. What do I do differently? Well, think about this. The last thing we want. Is for a couple nymphs and split shot and an indicator to be flying back and forth along our head at a high rate of speed with a tight loop. Tight loops are no good there because they have a tendency to tangle with all that weight and flies on there. So, what we want to do is we want to cast as slow a line as possible with a wider loop. Now, the length of the stroke controls the width of the loop. If you start making a really long stroke, The amount of line you're casting, your loop's going to get wide. Well, guess what? That's what we want, right? A wide loop is going to be less prone to tangle. So we are simply going to make a longer than normal stroke, and we're going to make that stroke as slow as we possibly can. That way that stuff's not rocketing back and forth alongside our head. So Those would be the two adjustments. And a lot of times, as many of your listeners will know, you don't even need a back cast. You let those nymphs wash downstream below you, You simply pick up and get your arm in position for a forward cast and just make your forward stroke. It's just gonna be a little longer so that that loop is wider. And uh, if you do that, you're not gonna have any tangles and you're not gonna kill yourself in the process. Okay, that's good advice. I hope that helps. You know, one last thing, I know that was your last question, but I wanted to add in one thing here if I could. And it's this, that people often think, well, you know, I I don't have enough ability to be a good fly caster. Fly casting again, as I mentioned earlier, is not like swinging a golf club. It is far, far easier. And in my experience, enthusiasm is far more important to mastery than innate ability. Everybody can make this motion of a fundamentally sound casting stroke. It's just a question of practicing it enough to where you have control over it. But it's not a hard motion, and it's that enthusiasm and joy for it that is going to carry you much further than some perceived lack of ability. So I just wanted to share that with with everyone.
0: Well, that's good news for all of us. And uh, I appreciate your optimism. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Always appreciate having you here.
1: Peter, it's always a pleasure to talk fly fishing with you. And I look forward to doing it again next time. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Oh, and before I forget, John has a website. It's johnjurasek.com. He'll be putting up a blog post that corresponds to this episode, and it will include links to videos of some of the casters that we talked about. You can check it out, and hopefully it will provide you some insight that goes with what John taught us in this episode. You can also find some short and sweet articles that he's written about fly fishing, quite a few actually, on casting, hatches, a whole manner of things that often get overlooked in fly fishing, so check it out. You won't regret it. And finally, to our listeners that reached out about spruce moths, we will get to an episode on them. Thanks so much for your feedback. Take care, everyone.